Welcome to episode 10 of Resisting the Dragon's Beast, our podcast and YouTube videos. I am here with Pastor Peter Hagen, who is the editor of the book. I'm Pastor Michael Zarling, the author of the book. Uh, we are in chapter four of the book as we're looking at the Magdeburg Confession. Uh, if you want to look at uh, and listen to the background on the Magdeburg Confession, that was in episode nine. Uh, here we're going to be reading some some portions of it and then applying it to present day and so forth. So we're on page 61 if you want to follow along. Uh, but Peter, I'm going to be reading from uh, some questions from uh, the study guide I had written. And if anyone wants a copy of it, you can just contact me. Uh, and I think this is very a very fitting question. This coming Sunday are the uh, the texts and our theme for worship is godly government, where the Old Testament lesson is Daniel 1, as Daniel resists the government when uh, he is told to eat from the king's table, and he says, I'll eat vegetables instead. Uh, and then uh, the gospel lesson is Jesus saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And then the epistle lesson is Romans 13, submit to governing authorities. So, Peter, how are the authors of the Magdeburg Confession trying to figure out the balance between Romans 13 and Revelation 13? Yeah, the uh, the biggest question um, is one that we all you know wrestle with in different ways. Romans 13 says, submit to the government. The government has been instituted by God and that the government has the power of the, the authority of the sword um, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And, you know, especially in that context, uh, the government is also the one who writes the laws. And hopefully, as a servant of God, that government is also writing laws that reflect God's moral law. So that's all kind of the first part. Um, and that sound, sounds fantastic. It's all well and good until you get to Revelation 13. And in Revelation 13, we see that um, God depicts the government as a beast that is guided by Satan and used, used by Satan to persecute the church of God. Um, and so on the one hand, we are told to submit to the government, and because it has been instituted by God, submit to them as though uh, submitting to God. And on the other hand, to watch out for them and to beware, because that government is going to be um, persecuting Christians specifically and trying to stop, use its power and authority uh, for evil to stomp out God's church. Yeah, I'm still, I'm just writing notes down for my sermon on Sunday on Daniel 1. And I'm thinking what I'm going to do is just kind of lay out how difficult this is uh, of trying to create that balance between Romans 13, where people might say, you know, well, Scripture says obey the government and you know, make it almost absolute. But it says submit to the governing authorities for they are God's servant to do you good. So what happens when they're God when they're servants who are not obeying God's will? What if they are uh, not doing us good but doing us harm? What about when these servants uh, they oppose the anointed one? Psalm two verse two. Uh, the only thing that the kings of the earth actually agree on is opposing the anointed one and us as his anointed ones through baptism. Then they are acting like that beast out of the sea in Revelation 13. What about when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's 
both Luther and the Lutheran confessions, the Magdeburg confession in particular, say, but we don't give to Caesar what does not belong to Caesar. We'll hear that a few times uh, as we go through this episode. And then, you know, you bring this up almost every episode, which is right when the people, when people say, well, we have to obey the government according to the fourth commandment. And yet Luther says rightly in scripture, the first, uh, the first authority that we listen to are parents in the fourth commandment. So all of those kinds of things uh, that when we, you know, thinking of, you know, how do we sin against this is something of the application for my sermon is when we get, we watch, we care too much in the government of who has to be the speaker of the house. And that's the big thing right now. Who's going to be the next president, uh, our local mayor, our governor. And we're so invested and we're watching CNN or Fox news or whatever all the time. And then we're, we're so invested. And we think that if we get the right person or right people in place, then things will be better on earth. But then the opposite side I don't want to have anything to do with it. And I'm sitting on my sofa and I'm uh, binge watching Netflix and eating my Doritos and I have nothing to do with it and not fulfilling my vocation as a citizen. I don't know if you want to say anything more on those things. Yeah. And, and that realistically um, it's very easy to be engaged in the, the politics or at least know about what's going on. Um, and I think the, the principle or the idea there is that, the further away a government is from us um, by levels, I suppose, the less impact it has, just generally speaking, that if you live in an HOA, that's going to have more influence or, or a state or a local township, more influence on your day to day life than the federal government. Um, but that also, you know, there's two ways to check out of being or participating in, in, the, in the government, participating in your community. Um, one is to sit back and binge watch your Netflix and play your Nintendo or whatever it is <laughs> that you want to do. Um, or the other one is to say, you know, we're just going to we're just going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about the life, death and resurrection of Jesus every single Sunday. And we won't we won't talk about politics. We won't talk about anything that is related to any voting or constitution. We want to be um, completely ignorant, if possible, about what yeah. the first First Amendment actually means. Um, and. And a pastor, I mean, that's a strong temptation to say, oh, that's political, then I don't want to talk about that. Or that's that involves a voting box and oh, no, the IRS is going to get me. Um, and it's very tempting to think that because that's the easy way out. Tempting to think that I can be faithful just by talking about Jesus and not making any mention of the state that I live in or the neighbor that I live near. Um, and to say, I've been faithfully preaching Jesus for 40 years. Um, maybe, but there is something better. You have neglected the better thing. Um, you know, like Mary has chosen what is better. The better thing is to actually take that scripture and apply it and then um, have it guide your actions in your vocation as a citizen. That That is a full gospel proclamation. Yeah, and I think some pastors and people have kind of charged me, whether it's in person or in, in the book and so forth, of you know, wanting anarchy. I mean, we should just resist all the time. And, and that's not what I'm about, and nor nor are you. And nor was Luther or the, the authors of the Magdeburg Confession. 
Uh, we do not want anarchy where everyone's doing it, whatever they see fit. Uh, you need to have authority over us. And yet, again, the opposite side of the spectrum is when you, when citizens just go along and practice absolute obedience without ever questioning anything, then the government will always take more power and then there's tyranny. So on the one side, just like everything we're talking about, there's anarchy or tyranny. We need to be in the middle. So we have the governing authorities, they're God's curb to us and our sinful nature. But I think we forget this is that we as citizens, especially in America, we are the curb to the sinful natures of the governing authorities. So there isn't tyranny. And so we, God uses all of us for this and that they are, this will be a big point I'll, I'll bring up in the sermon is that we are, uh, the governing authorities are our servants, but uh, they are God's servants to do us good. And yet in America, they serve us. It's we, the people, and we pay, we vote them in, we pay their salaries. And so that's very different than maybe in Paul's day and so forth. Uh, but this is what the, the writers of the Magdeburg Confession said, uh, that when God's servants are no longer doing God's will, then they become servants of Satan. The bottom of page 61. In these matters, just as subjects necessarily owe obedience to their magistrates and children and the rest of the family to their parents and masters on account of God, so, on the other hand, when magistrates and parents themselves lead their charges away from true piety and uprightness, obedience is not owed to them from the word of God. Also, when they professly persecute piety and uprightness, they remove themselves from the honor of magistrate and parents before God and their own consciences. And instead of being an ordinance before God, they become an ordinance of the devil, which can and ought to be resisted by his order for the sake of one's calling. Notice what they say there. They can, but they say they <laughs> ought to be resisted. Yeah, not just that you have the freedom to resist, but that you have the, um, the responsibility. Yeah, and then... Uh, I, I wish I would have uh, thought of Daniel chapter one in the book. I did not use that as an example of resistance, but uh, I'll be talking about that more on the Thirsty podcast with uh, Nathan and then also in the sermon. But here is Daniel, who's told you need to eat the, the food from the king's feast. And he says no, because of his dietary restrictions, and his religious restrictions and so forth. But he resists, but he does not rebel. He does not revolt. There's a difference. And that's what, what I say in the book on page 62, uh, that the pastors call for, for allegiance to both God and Caesar. But when Caesar exceeds his power, then he is attempting to exert the powers of Christ. This is not a doctrine of revolution, nor that of rebellion. It is a doctrine of resistance. It is a resistance when the governing authorities are not following their own laws or God's laws. And I quote the Magdeburg Confession, We command the whole church by the word of Christ to render unto God the things that are God and to Caesar 
though he be different in religion the things that are Caesar's. They render these duties of double obedience and conduct themselves without rancor. When both sides keep themselves within the limits of their duty prescribed by God and by the laws. Again, when there is a departure on either side from these limits, then horrible sins and severe unrest cannot but arise. In this way, now you, Charles Caesar, are exceeding the limits of your dominion, and you are extending it into the dominion of Christ. So to that, Peter, how was Charles V, and I like how they call him Charles Caesar, how was he exceeding his limits of dominion? Yeah, um, because he was trying to compel the Lutherans to to change their doctrine, to affect, to you know, change how they teach and what they teach, um, so that he could have some unity within his within his kingdom on the religious front. Um, and that unity in the in the kingdom is um, it is within his domain, you know, as as the king, as the you know the the Caesar in the left hand kingdom. Um, but as to what ought to be proclaimed in the churches does not belong to him. And, um, and that's the, uh, the, over, the overstepping of his bounds that they were talking about here. Um, because, you know, Magdeburg is the one that was, that was holding out there that we talked about last episode um, and earlier in the chapter. It's the one holdout um, out of all the, other, all the other cities and regions that had, had fallen to the, the emperor. Yeah, and then... The Magdeburg Confession is uh, laying out three arguments for resistance, and they're really centered on the theological idea of the lesser magistrate doctrine. So, Peter, what is that lesser magistrate doctrine? Um, yeah, the, the basic idea here is that, I guess by example, um, the, the Nuremberg defense is basically, I was commanded to do it and I was just following orders. That's what like the SS who ran the, the camps in World War II, I was just following orders. So therefore I'm absolved of responsibility. Um, and that was a godless way for them to try to get out of their moral, moral obligation. Um, the lesser magistrate doctrine is the idea and the truth that this, that you have a responsibility, even if somebody above you is abdicating their responsibility. So you, as the one who is lesser, who has less power, less influence, less, um, less authority, that you still have the responsibility to act in a way that is morally and upright and good. Um, and so you have a responsibility to do what is best for those who are under you, under your authority, even if those who are above you are not doing what is best for those who are under you. Um, and where this comes in most often is where there's an overlap of authority, such as, um, you know, you live in one town or one state, and then um, somebody within that state, like this kind of came up with the Obergefell decision, um, that a city clerk or a town clerk or a county clerk would not issue a marriage license for two men or two women who were getting married. That the, the upper, the greater magistrate um, of the Supreme Court had ruled that, that gay marriage was the law of the land, and the lesser one, the one who had less authority, still had the responsibility to act in a way that was moral. Um, and I guess the other, most of the other times when we see a prop up would be in cases of like a, a sheriff um, who has some law enforcement authority, um, but he's elected and usually over a county, as opposed to like a police chief who is appointed by the mayor in most cases. 
And so the, the sheriff um, has, will often have, take on a greater responsibility for his actions rather than the police chief who just says, well, it's an administrative decision. The sheriff recognizes I have a responsibility to these people who elected me. Right. And so this is what the Magdeburg Confession says about this first argument for resistance. And based on that doctrine of the lesser magistrate, the magistrate is an ordinance of God for honor to do good works and a terror to evil works. Romans 13. Therefore, when he begins to be a terror to good works and honor to evil, there is no longer in him because he does thus the ordinance of God, but the ordinance of the devil. But he who resists, it is necessary that he resists in his own station as a matter of his calling. So they're saying that, yeah, these are God's servants, but they can switch sides. And when they switch sides, then it is the calling of the vocation of the lesser magistrate to stand up to them. And this was one of the things that I talked about in the last pastor's conference I spoke on. They were talking about, well, do you just resist? And, and I said, no, if it's just on me and there, you know, maybe it's persecution or just a bad law and immoral law, but it's just affecting me as a single guy, I may turn the other cheek because I am dealing with that uh, on my own. But then I said to these guys, I said, but I am also called in my vocation as a husband and a father that I am not going to allow my family to be persecuted or for them to be put down. That's not, uh, that's, I am going to stand up for them. That's maybe... I don't, that's not what they're talking about here in the lesser magistrate, but I didn't want to forget that. But, you know, in a way, and, you know, Peter, you and I as husbands and fathers, we are kind of the lesser magistrate or maybe the greater magistrate and stepping in and we need to protect our families. And mm -hmm. so that was just one of the ways I tried to explain to the pastors. There are times that we may turn the other cheek and just take it and they want our cloak. We give them our cloak. The second cloak, uh, they tell us to walk one mile, we walk two miles and so forth. But when they're doing that to our wife and kids, as husband and father, I need to step in. Yeah, and, and I guess that's the idea. Like the, the lesser and greater magistrate idea is like um, like umbrellas that are kind of stacked on one on top of the other. And that each successive umbrella from the top on down basically has the responsibility to keep the person dry. Um, when the first, when the top umbrella breaks, isn't doing its job, then the second umbrella should step up and, uh, and make sure that it is shielding those below it and the whole way down. Um, and when it finally gets down to, you know, not just you as pastor of a congregation, but it is so direct that it is um, affecting your family directly, then yeah, it is the, the pastor is kind of the, the last, the one who is called to be the head of his family. Um, and kind of the last line of defense to defend the uh, the, the children and the, the family within his household. Um, and that that will probably mean um, standing up for what is right, you know, um, or taking a stand or speaking up now when it is um, easier to speak up and there is some possibility to sway public opinion rather than just kicking it down the road and saying, well, it's not my problem. 20 years from now, I'm going to be dead anyway. And uh, my kids will, well, 40 years for, for you probably with all your biking. And my kids will figure <laughs> it out. Um, 
But as the, the lesser magistrate idea, lesser magistrate doctrine says that um, I have a responsibility to do what is right and what is morally correct, as well as a responsibility to those below me or that God has entrusted to me, um, that I take on the responsibility now so that they don't have to take on a greater pain or responsibility later. Yeah, and a side note, talking about all my biking, I uh, showed something to a friend of mine, a member of the congregation. He does a lot of biking with me. We're both around 43, 4,400 miles for the year. And I said, hey, I'm thinking of getting this rowing machine. What do you think? And it's almost a brand new one. And he said, absolutely, Pastor. I said, really? And he goes, yeah, because if you have this, then you'll have less time to bike and I'll beat you. <laughs> That's, that's awesome. I'm looking at my whole body health and he's just looking at the mileage, which is fair because that's what I would have said to him too. Uh, and then the second argument, uh, the authors of the Magdeburg Confession are laying out when governing authorities, they will always and eventually take more power. I can only think of like George Washington, who America... America would have made him king. If he would have accepted it, we would have had a king. They liked him so much. And he said, no, he refused it. Uh, he could have gone on, uh, just been president for life or king. He said, no, but most of the time they're going to take authority. And when they do that, then they're taking authority that does not belong to them. It belongs to God. And they say in the second argument, page 64, when Christ commands with an affirmative and by clear inference that the things which are Caesar's are to be rendered unto Caesar and the things which are God's to be rendered unto God, we rightly infer from the affirmative a negative. Likewise, by clear inference, just as negative commandments as in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, always include an affirmative sentence by direct inference. And so by the force of this precept, the things which are God's are not to be rendered unto Caesar, just as the apostles hand down this rule and precept. We must obey God rather than men. And by refusing obedience to superiors in these things which are contrary to God, they do not violate the majesty of their superiors, nor can they be judged obstinate or rebellious. As Daniel says, I have committed no crime against you, O king. Uh, and then the third argument, the pastors assert that God does not support evil tyrants. Is I think this is an important thing. If so, then that would make God an institutor of evil. They say, if God wanted superior magistrates who have become tyrants to be inviolable because of his ordinance and commandment, how many impious and absurd things would follow from this? Chiefly, it would follow that God, by his own ordinance and command, is strengthening, nay, honoring and abetting evil works, and is hindering, nay, destroying good works. What are they saying in that third argument, Peter? Um, basically, that God is not the author of evil. Um, and where the, this came up, I guess, uh, last week in Bible class here, we were talking about um, how God uses a father and a mother to to create a new person and that he works through the father and the mother to create a soul as well. Um, and it's not the idea that there's a bank of souls in heaven and God just doles them out whenever a, whenever a child is born. Um, and because if if it were a bank of souls in heaven, then God would be the author of evil and that God would be responsible for um, the original sin inherent within that child. Um, and it's a similar idea here that if if God is the one and he acts through these governments, 
Um, and he, he says, submit to these governments out of respect for God, that he wants to act through these governments, and these governments change over time. Um, then to say that, you know, that God condones and therefore every single person should, um, should submit or should obey this government um, would say that, well, God is the one who is, who is encouraging evil. God is the one who is, in, at one sense, um, hindering and tearing down the good works that would happen otherwise. Um, and so it's the idea there is, especially in that second line, um, that if God wanted them to be inviolable because of his ordinance and commandment, um, I think that the big thing that they're working with here is the idea that, that Christians can work with to influence their government in a particular way, especially when that government is not acting in a godly way. Yeah. And that's where we have to be careful when we say, well, we just have to obey that's giving absolute obedience to a government that has become or will become tyrannical. It's just the nature of, of governments and kings. And so what the Magdeburg Confession says, ah, we have to say no here. We've got to pull back. And it's good for us, but it's also good for everyone else. And like you're saying, but you said before, Peter, it's good for those in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they they lay out their four levels of injustice. So I'm just going to read uh, each of these levels and we can explain them. So this is page 66. The first level, a governing authority makes mistakes. They may be mistakes of a sinful nature, weakness, trying to do good, but it doesn't work out, etc. The recognition is that no authority is going to be perfect. So we bear patiently. We turn the other cheek. We learn perseverance during suffering. Lower magistrates may warn the higher authorities about this if they so choose. The confession gives direction that the people must patiently bear these injustices. This is just, <laughs> uh, this is not the time to rise and complaint. The first injustice is thus making allowances for bad policy. So, can you think of an example or what are they saying there, Peter, of these guys are just making, these guys and gals, these ladies are making mistakes in the government? Um, you think of, um, you know, like the book of Esther and, and Haman has Xerxes write about this, um, these people in his empire who are constantly against him. And, and Xerxes would be like, yeah, we, we shouldn't have people who are um, openly trying to, you know, uh, rebel and, and, you know, tear apart the empire. And so he passes this law. But it's a, it's a law that is not good. It, it may have... Um, may have risen even to, to the second level, but it was a mistake that, that God then worked through Esther to correct and to provide some sort of a correction for. Um, and so the idea here is basically that even when we have laws with, um, with smart people writing those laws and smart people interpreting those and applying those laws, which isn't always the case, um, even when that happens and that is the case, we still have limited ability to see the ramifications. Like there's going to be some unintended consequences here, um, and you can't see that ahead of time. And um, you know, like the the talk about um, a couple of years ago, that the government wanted to reduce emissions, and so they they passed a law about um, the size of engines and trucks. And what it ended up doing was just it it made allowances for trucks over a certain size because those were work trucks according to the law at the time, and so trucks on the road are now built to that code because they aren't restricted by the same emissions uh, laws that smaller trucks are. 
and your basic Ford Ranger and Toyota Tacoma from like 20 or 30 years ago doesn't exist anymore, um, except for the ones that people have got have still have running because it was an unintended consequence of the law that they wrote. And, um, and I think basically that's what, what number one is talking about here. Sure. And I use the example of uh, California. I was very close to taking my call to California six months ago. But there are a lot of things in California that concern me. And one of them is that the governor of California has laid out the mandate that by 2035, there will be no uh, gas-powered motors in the state, whether it's a vehicle or a lawnmower, uh, a weed eater, and so forth. It's all going to be electric. And yet, California does not have the infrastructure, uh, the power grid, to be able to do that. And so if they... Uh, if everything goes through and they do it by 2035 and nothing's done before then, it's going to be a literal dark ages. Uh, and so do you just go along with it according to one because they're just making mistakes? Uh, and then when I told that story this weekend at a pastor's conference, another pastor said, and I didn't know this, is also in there that uh, if they don't, if they need power, because you'll have your electric vehicles and so forth, the government can take your power from your electric vehicle, your EV, and then uh, drain your vehicle down so that uh, they don't have a brownout or a blackout. So, whoa, that's that's pretty dangerous. That might be taking uh, something that does not belong to them. Okay, yeah. so that those are examples of maybe uh, they're just making mistakes. We see that maybe we call them out. We're, we're calling the the office. We're sending emails. We're talking to them in person. Those kind of things. But then there's a second level, the lawless tyrant. The second level is that of atrocious and notorious injuries. This is not merely an oversight or an imperfection. This is not an accident or something not quite working out right. There seems to be a purposeful neglect of duty, a willful disregard for the Constitution, or a systemic twisting of the rule of law, and at the expense of the governed. As the governing authorities increase their forceful disregard for proper governing, the Magdeburg Confession increases the force the lower magistrates then place on the higher authorities. And there I think of in so many of our cities in America where you have these district attorneys, these DAs that are not prosecuting crime. And so now there's just lawlessness. And mm -hmm. uh, the people that are, are then prosecuted are those that are defending their vehicles, defending their, their shops and so forth. Now, there's a tyrant, but they're just allowing lawlessness. And then they have their own nefarious plans, whatever those are. Uh, and because uh, because it's going on in so many cities and so many cities that's, that are run by one party, you go, right, this can't be ignorance. They can't, in these big cities, they these are smart people that are running these cities. Yeah. Uh, and so there has to be something else behind it. I'm not saying I know what it is or anything like that, but there has to be. And so now have they, have they risen to that second level of the lawless tyrant? 
Yeah, and I had this conversation with a friend uh, who happens to be um, in law enforcement locally. And, um, and it was kind of this discussion of why would somebody in law enforcement in, in this area um, arrest somebody on, you know, on a serious charge or you know, a domestic charge or something like that when it finally goes to court and they are charged with, um, with the very basic of misdemeanors or charges are dropped completely. Um, and he said this, this happens continually. Um, like they arrest somebody with in possession of serious drugs or there's been a serious argument at home that includes violence of some sort or threats of further violence like that's a serious thing where the government ought to step in and um, and protect those who are less able to defend themselves right and then it goes before the um, before the the county courthouse and they're like well we're gonna let it have let, let it slide this time you know this is your first offense or fifth offense um and 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 charges are dropped and and his comment was you know there's there's lies damn lies and statistics that if the charges are dropped did that domestic dispute ever even happen mm -hmm. was somebody in possession of a very serious illegal illicit drug or not well if you don't have a statistic on it then it never happened then there's nowhere to look here uh winston smith it just went down the memory hole I don't know if you go that far, but that is that that is the mindset um, yeah. that lawlessness that people get hurt when the those entrusted with authority don't use it properly. Right. And then there's the third level, the coercive tyrant, uh, page 67. The mandates of the governing authorities have become increasingly and consistently tyrannical. There is a difference of degree with level two. Innocent toleration is no longer possible. At this point, the lower magistrates can no longer decide between concession and interposing. It is now their duty to interpose for the good of the citizens. They themselves are governing. They must defend the rights and freedoms of their citizens with diplomacy and even arms if necessary. Here, an inferior magistrate is so forced to certain sin that he is not able to suffer it without sin if defense is omitted. The pastors are saying that the lower magistrates are sinning if they're not interposing on behalf of their citizens. So maybe one, one example, and you and I were talking before we started recording about some local examples we know of. But the one that comes to mind when reading that is uh, where the federal government is allowing illegal aliens to cross our border. And then you have Governor Abbott who is putting the National Guard up to, to stop this from happening, even going to the, uh, I don't know, extreme, but uh, making the case, this is wrong, and then letting other people on one side of the political spectrum to know what's going on, on in these in the state that's more on one on the other side of the political spectrum, and then busing or flying these illegal aliens elsewhere. That would be an example of a lesser magistrate of the governor stepping in when the president is allowing something. But in our, uh, in our system of government, and I think we've gotten away from this because you and I say this all the time that we don't know our civics very well, is the, I think we have the idea, well, the president is higher than the governor, but that's not the way it is. It's state rights are higher than federal rights correct mm -hmm. 
Okay. And and jurisdiction. You're, you're the guy that knows there's, that stuff. Yeah. There, there's a jurisdictional difference that, for the most part, um, the federal government gets involved in cases of national security, national risk, and interstate commerce. Yeah. Um, and when things when when things cross state lines, that's when that's when the federal federal government has a a greater uh, interest there. So, what was your example of, about maybe where we fit in here with this third level? <laughs> yeah. This third level um, here in Ohio, there is a, a constitutional amendment coming up in November. Um, and on, on the surface, the way people talk about it is that it's a constitutional amendment to um, to make a, a constitutional right to provide abortion within the state of Ohio. Um, and the, the Republicans who are in, currently in charge of the House, they they tried a, an election back in August to make the threshold for um, passing a constitutional amendment even higher, they totally messed that up and it was it was very poorly written. Um, and and it was, yeah, it, it was a political attempt at a constitutional thing. Um, anyway, so the constitutional amendment, um, people talk about it, it's to protect abortion rights within Ohio. But the way it's written is um, it, it looks just like, you know, a, a page of word salad, just throw, words thrown together. Um, but it's not. It is, it is written with very specific legal terminology that have legal words um, who, which have a def defined um, legal context and a defined legal meaning. And so there's only one time where the word abortion is used in issue number one, and that is that the state and agents of the state will not be able to infringe upon the right of an abortion when somebody, when a medical professional has advised the parent for the health of the mother that, uh, that this abortion is necessary. Um, already you hear there, you know, that phrase health of the mother, that has a legal definition. That isn't just she's going to die if she doesn't have this abortion, which never happens. Um, that health of the mother is also her emotional health, her mental health, her spiritual health, her financial health. You know, it's expensive to raise a kid and I, pff, health of the mother, right? The bigger issue for me um, is that they stack up and they pile up all of these precisely legally defined terms and pile them together. And the way the original amendment is written is that nobody shall interfere with the reproductive choices of any person within the state of Ohio. Not talking about nobody shall interfere with the right of a pregnant woman to have an abortion. That would be very specific. This is much more general. Nobody shall interfere with the reproductive choices of any person within the state of Ohio. So state of Ohio, uh, we've got a couple of boys at our house um, who are all minors. They are not 18 yet, uh, but they are people in the state of Ohio. And, um, and we all have things that the law recognizes as reproductive organs. Um, and so the way it's written is that that young child can make the decision to have his reproductive organs modified um, and that no person shall be able to interfere with that, um, which also means that the parent of this minor child who, you know, he doesn't even know what his favorite color is, um, much less how he should, you know, the proper godly use of the body. Um, no person should interfere with that means that it is now becomes illegal or at least unlawful for a parent to restrain their child from life-altering surgery, which is a vastly different um, discussion from whether it is right for, whether it should be a constitutional right to have abortion in the state of Ohio. 
So the course of tyrant, and it's like, you know, at some point, the Christian, we should all be able to agree that killing babies is wrong, um, and that we could speak up about this, and, and that it's okay to encourage somebody to vote in line with what is moral, what we all recognize as moral, that murder is wrong. I could go on about that, like, for another yeah. podcast and a half. <laughs> yeah, and, and then here, this is something I, I talked about, or I learned about last night, that here in Wisconsin, a case has been brought. Now it's going to be taken right to the Supreme Court. So they're skipping all of the other lower courts, which is nefarious on its own because you should only do this in a in an emergency. This is not an emergency case. And what it is, is someone is suing to say that uh, school choice. So where we have school choice, Wisconsin, and then Locally, it started with, with Wisconsin, with Milwaukee, and then Racine, and then now the whole state of Wisconsin. Uh, that the government pays for students under a certain uh, level of income for the family, they'll pay for them to go to a school like our school, Wisconsin Lutheran School in Racine, or Shoreline Lutheran High School. And uh, they've said that that's unconstitutional. Well, we just have a, a a fourth liberal judge on our Supreme Court. So now our Supreme Court leans to the left. And so if this is found to be uh, unconstitutional, there are 56,000 school choice students in the state of Wisconsin, 26,000, something like that, just in Milwaukee alone. All right. So again, uh, what where you and I are talking about this is yours is definitely wrong, you know, because it's uh, sexual reproduction, abortion, and so forth. Now, there's not nothing not necessarily moral or immoral about school choice. And yet, uh, you know, what would this do to our all of our Lutheran grade schools and high schools if it's found to be uh, unconstitutional, which I don't think it is. But if it can be deemed that way, uh, so here's where I would say, you know, pastors, teachers, people, we can talk about these kinds of things. It's not political, just saying this is a good thing to discuss and and even uh, talk about it uh, in the class, in the Bible study. I was going to mention it maybe in the sermon, but I'm talking about it in the podcast so I, I can save sermon time for other things. Uh, but the the fourth level, the persecutor of God. This is when the governing authorities are no longer mere tyrants, either by accident or purpose. They are now persecutors of God, not just a persecutor of the people, but a persecutor of God himself. Uh, then I quote the Magdeburg Confession. It is when tyrants begin to be so mad that they may persecute with guile and arms, and that they persecute God, the author of right in persons, not by any sudden and mod momentary fury, but with a deliberate and persistent attempt to destroy good works for all posterity. And then the Magdeburg Confession calls this person a bear wolf, a werewolf, an antichrist holding office in the kingdom of the devil. The bear wolf was something that Luther had used. So think of a werewolf. Uh, so here the the pastors writing the Magdeburg, they are creating, or not creating, they're setting up that dichotomy and making it clear to people of when people in the government 
that they go from being a servant of God of Romans 13, and now they have switched sides, and now they are servants of the devil, and they have become the beast out of the sea. So I guess the, the big question that I have in my study guide then is, uh, where are we right now in our political spectrum on those levels of injustice? And it, yeah, uh, if I let Peter go, we we wouldn't finish this podcast. <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that, it, is, it, that is the question. Yeah, and, and it is the question. And that's why I think it's important for us to talk about these things, uh, to learn about the Magdeburg Confession. Uh, that was one of the things that when I gave this talk on my book several weeks ago at the St. Croix Pastors Conference, a number of them said, I hadn't even really heard about the Magdeburg Confession, let alone read it. So, you know, those are the things that I tell people is uh, go on Amazon, go to Barnes & Noble, wherever, get a copy of the Magdeburg Confession, read it, study it, but then also get uh, the Magdeburg Confession 13th of April, 1530 AD, and Tyranny and Resistance, the Magdeburg Confession in the Lutheran Tradition. Those two books, in addition, the Magdeburg Confession, they're not thick, uh, but only like an inch, inch and a half thick, uh, and, and to read those, uh, because we need to be knowing this Lutheran doctrine of resistance so that we can ask the question all the time, where are we on these? So that we're not, uh, we're not lackadaisical in our vocation and we're just obeying so much that it's become worship of the government, which is what uh, Jesus says to St. John is going to happen. Uh, but, we don't want to just be resisting so much that it becomes rebellion and revolution and becomes tyranny. That can't happen either. Yeah, and I so, think taking yeah, all ahead. these things, taking all these things into understanding, and um, it does, it, it gives you at least a guideline for how do I speak up on a daily basis? Because we're not thinking like, oh boy, the needle is getting all the way up to number four and it's time to 1776 all over again. That's ridiculous. Um, but to say, you know, talking about social issues, talking about um, law enforcement, talking about you name it, the other option, the areas that we see our government um, taking a stand um, or that impact our lives, and knowing where they're at gives us a little bit more clear, clear mindedness to think of how I can best confess Christ in this in this time and in this setting, um, and on on the daily basis, um, on the, each election, on the um, you know talking with my neighbor, um, all these things that it enables us. Here's the point: it enables us to have a starting point for how do we address our day to day instead of just prepping and looking forward to say oh no it's gonna it's gonna come a time when we'll have to uh you know go all 1776 on them and that's that's not that would be missing the point of this whole um levels of one through four yeah and i think that's a good summary of uh, my question heading of page 69 what can we learn from the magdeburg confession uh and so then wrapping this up what were the results of Magdeburg resisting the emperor. Well, the emperor 
and with his forces as well as the Pope's forces were outside of the city, the walled city of Magdeburg for 40 days. And then the Lutheran Prince Maurice, who had been a traitor to the Lutheran princes, now he he became a traitor to the emperor and the Pope. He declared himself the liberator. And then he turned his armies away from Magdeburg and then uh, he headed them toward Augsburg, where he drove out the imperial forces of the emperor and the pope. And then once Magdeburg and the other Lutheran cities were freed, well, now everyone was freed. Uh, so a couple of quick quotes then on uh, what's the result of the writing of the Magdeburg Confession. The Magdeburg Confession is an important historical work between the men of Magdeburg, uh, who were the first in the history of mankind to set forth in a doctrinal format what only later came to be known as the Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate. And then the Magdeburg Confession is one of the most important documents of the Reformation on political theology. And it played a key and positive role in the development of resistance theory. That's from tyranny and resistance. And like we talked about in the beginning of last time's podcast from G.I. Joe, now, now you know and knowing is half the battle. So we can conclude then with this podcast episode in the same place that the authors of the Magdeburg Confession ended it, uh, where they quote Psalm 93. Uh, and there I set it up was whether they are tyrants, antichrist, bear wolves, or beasts out of the sea and the earth, all allying themselves to the red dragon, the devil, the Lord Almighty still sits on high. The psalmist writes, the Lord reigns. He is clothed in majesty. The Lord is clothed. He wears strength like a belt. Yes, the world stands firm. It will not be moved. Your throne was established long ago. You are from eternity. The waves have lifted up, O Lord. The waves have lifted up their voice. The waves roar loudly. Mightier than the thundering of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your testimony stand very firm. Holiness beautifies your house for endless days, O Lord. 